For the Los Angeles Review of Books, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm sitting here in Pasadena, California today with Michelle Hunnevin. She's a novelist. She's also well-regarded as a food writer, too, by the way, but she's got her fourth novel newly out. It's got much coverage from the LARB and elsewhere as well. It's called Off Course. Its predecessors are Round Rock, Jamesland, and Blame. So as I say, number four. And it stars, it stars a character who is sent to exile in in the Sierras, but what is Pasadena to her? What is the city we sit in to, to Cressida Hartley? Pasadena is where Cress was born and raised and where her most important friends, her high school friends, uh, still reside. And so when she thinks of home, she thinks of Pasadena. Mm. When she finished graduate school, she moved back to a lovely little tourist court that was managed by her best friend, Tilly, um, who and populated by other friends of hers from high school. And she thinks of home, I, I don't know if I will say all the time in the book, but fairly often. Tell me, what is, you know, it seems like novels, you're, you're known as a California novelist, and you obviously know California very well. You can tell that from your novels. The, the Sierras are somehow... They're not far and they're not close. Is that right? That's exactly right. Um, Cress's parents' mountain cabin is maybe 180 miles away. And those first 160 miles take three hours. And the last 30 miles, 20 miles, um, takes an hour and a half. So they're they're further away than you would think because of the twisty, turny road and uh, the altitude gain. Now tell me what is what is or what was the appeal for you in sending in sending a young, ambitious character into this form of exile up into the mountains, where what does what are her expectations for this? She has this childhood where she was going to the cabinet, her parents' cabin up there so often. But what what expectations do you give her starting this book? Well, she has a kind of romantic idea of what it takes to write to write her dissertation, and it's the idea that we need to go into solitude and get away from everything that nips at us and sort some of the Walden thing. Exactly, the Walden thing. Only, you know, Thoreau had mom within walking distance. Um, and and she has this idea that the self-discipline that eluded her around her high school friends and even probably to some degree in graduate school um, is going to magically descend at 7,300 feet. I take it you've never had this experience of a novel suddenly getting written while going into solitude yourself, have you? This is you, you. You wouldn't say that has been the cure for any slow writing you have endured. It's never solitude, is it? Well, as I get older, maybe a little bit more. It's solitude, but certainly it took me twenty years to write my first novel because I kept thinking I didn't need any help. And it wasn't until I actually joined a writing group and had deadlines to turn in chapters and people to kind of encourage me and help me along and get me over my my um, stuck spots. Uh, that's what really helped. I, like Cress, you know, had this misapprehension that writing was done in, you know, perfect privacy. <laughs> she doesn't think she needs any help. No, she just thinks that she just needs to 
I don't know, get some sort of inspiration or that something will let her sit down day after day. And it doesn't help that she's writing an economics thesis. She's not writing a novel. She's, she's writing something where both a novel and an economics thesis need some research. But in an economics thesis, I feel like I would... This, is, this book is set in the early 80s. Let's get that clear. She didn't have the internet up there. And she can't, she can't do any more research if she needs to do any more. I almost was scared reading about the prospect of having to write a dissertation in an internetless cabin. Uh, I mean, she goes about it fairly... Not blithely, but it's almost like she's she's so confident at the beginning. This is going to this is going to solve the problem. This is this is going to solve this problem, and kind of all subsequent problems, right? <laughs> it's funny. I yeah the the big obstacle to her life is this dissertation. Once she gets it done, it's like she's going to come out into some bright spot where she'll get a job and find the right mate and all will be well but um, sometimes sometimes the obstacle itself is a way of of not of not letting that happen you know of not letting something else happen she I, uh, she's completed her research. She has a couple boxes of research. The problem was, in the process of doing her research, she lost interest in the project. <laughs> this notion of the obstacle, an obstacle not really being an obstacle, or an obstacle sort of... An how do I put this without sounding too complicated? An obstacle causing the situation that you think it's obstructing. I mean, it, it happens again with the men that Cressida gets involved with in this small community. The the fact that they're in various ways unavailable, that makes them available, doesn't it? Does that make any sense? Um, well, Adam Phillips, the great British psychoanalyst, says um, an obstacle is a way of not letting something else happen. And I think that what Cress is afraid of happening is that she's she's going to lead an ordinary life. She's She's... She's really unhappy in her own family and her own family life, and she doesn't want to blithely reproduce that. Yeah. Although peculiarly, um, the, the only thing she's sort of sort of capable of at that point, I think, is to reproduce some form of unhappiness. Mm. She has a lot of work to do. <laughs> what to her is this ordinary life? Is it the oh, you think of the American stereotype of her parents' generation of just sort of. I don't, what, what does she think of as the too normal, too easily, too easily fallen into life she's trying to avoid? Well, at one point she thinks it's, you know, finishing the dissertation, getting a job, marrying an appropriate man, having a baby, going part-time or, you know, taking a leave from the job and becoming PTA president or, as she says, given that she's an economist, PTA treasurer. Yes, indeed. That's what she has the qualifications for, she thinks. Now, as I mentioned, there, there she turns a few heads when she gets to this. This The, the name of the community is Sawyer, yes? Is this... Tell me a little bit about... There's there's a few different places in the, in the Sierras, and she, she goes between them. So, because we'll be referring to them. For the listener, what... Where, where exactly is she? Okay. She's north of Bakersfield. North of Bakersfield, I have a small fictional town called Sparkville. Then you turn east and head straight towards the Sierras, and at the base of the Sierras, in the foothills, is the tiny, sad western town of Sawyer. 
And then at Sawyer, you take the road that climbs up, 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 and up and goes to a small patch of private land in the National Forest, which is called the Meadows. So she lives in this small uh, community of weekend homes with maybe 25, 28 permanent residents. And she sort of sets up as a semi-permanent resident. <laughs> and there are other semi-permanent residents, um, like carpenters who are up there working away from home, men without their wives. Their wives are down in the valley, down in Sparkville or Sawyer. And um, she works for like the contractor up there who lives up there. She has an affair with the guy that owns the lodge, Jakey, this big guy, 20 years older than she is, who's just a lot of fun, but he's a lot of fun for practically every other woman that walks in the door of the lodge, too. It's, I guess I would say it's surprising to me, but it's still fascinating that even in a, even in a place like this that is mostly a community of weekend homes, semi-permanent residents, as you say, part-time residents, still so much romantic intrigue develops here. It seems like just put humans in a place, no matter what the place is, and everybody's going to be sleeping with everybody. Is that, about, is that the size of it? I'm afraid that's the size of it. It seems to be the size of it. I mean, now that I've gotten older, it's not so apparent to me. But when I'm young, you know, it's just fear homes everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's something that Cressida thinks about, thinks about in a way. She looks at herself in the mirror and thinks, well, you know, I'm, I'm not as attractive as some of the women here. It may be in her own mind that's only true, I don't know. But is it just that she's, she's sort of new blood, a fresh injection of life into this place? That, that, is that a substantial portion of why the men are attracted to her, besides the fact that you know, she's younger than most of the women there? I would say that that's true. And, and it's, um, if you read the LARB review... Uh, the reviewer talks about how everybody is everybody's girlfriend at some point, and if she's not your girlfriend, she's not your girlfriend yet. <laughs> That's one way of framing it. Tell me, how much, did you have much experience going up into similar communities to these in, in the mountains uh, at any time, I guess? Have you, have you had much connection yourself to that part of California? Oh, yes. My parents had, had a a couple cabins up at, ah. up in, you know, the area that I really quite fictionalize. Mm. I like to write about places that I know deeply. Um, it's half laziness, but it's also, you know, half focus. As we say, novelist of California, right? Exactly. Novelist of Altadena. That's <laughs> my ambition. And you didn't set out to be a novelist of California, I would imagine, but you. it turns out, I mean, you, did you discover that about your writing abilities? Like, hey, I can... I can write about this state really well because you want to write about places you know deeply. Those places are in California. Well, I sort of stumbled upon it accidentally. I mean, my first book took place in the kind of Piru, uh, Fillmore area, which I fictionalized, which was I passed through on the way to see my parents in Ojai. My second novel um, takes place in Los Feliz, James Land, Los Feliz, Silver Lake, Atwater area. And then I had a huge crisis with my third novel, Blame, because I wanted a small western city with a big hotel in it. Um, and I thought, Boise, and I actually flew up to Sacramento 
and looked around Sacramento and thought, do I want to come here five or ten more times or however <laughs> long it, it takes? And then, So that's the question you put to yourself. Do I need, am I going to want to be here as much time as it takes to absorb it? Absorb it. And then um, I, I, I don't know what all of a sudden gave me the idea because for a year I couldn't start the novel because I didn't know where to put it. I would mm. sort of write these scenes in an offhand way. I thought there would be a trout stream. <laughs> I can't quite remember what it was, but one day I realized the Green Hotel, I could fictionalize. You know, there are all these hotels throughout Pasadena that some of them are SROs now or condos, but it used to be a great tourist spot. And so I thought, why not write about Pasadena and and something about that fell into place that I it kind of radicalized me in a sense that now I really just want to write about where I live. It helps that my next door neighbor is the Altadena town historian, so we talk about history all the time. It's better than the internet having a source like that right there, right? It is so much better than the internet and so much more in depth. Yes, I would imagine. I would imagine so. Now it's. Some, I have to assume that the greater Los Angeles, shall we say, that a Cressida Hartley grew up in, or, or one that she, the one that she finds at in the early '80s, is fairly different than the one today. I mean, do you do you see yourself many differences in that era and this one, or is it are the differences superficial? Well, there are some good differences. The restaurants are a whole lot better now. What were they like then? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Um, they were not very interesting. It was the age of fern bars and <laughs> and sort of coffee shops. And if you wanted to go out to eat something fancy, you went to... I don't even know where you went to. You went to a handful of restaurants, Perino's, um, yes. Robert's. Um, I can't even remember all of them. And in Pasadena, you know, there just was very little, very little. This was before California cuisine really came into its own, huh? Long before. I see, I see. It, it's funny, though, because I live in Altadena, and Al Altadena hasn't really changed that much. And the reason it hasn't changed is that it's just full of intransigent soreheads whom, <laughs> whom I count myself one of, um, who... You know, we think, oh, well, maybe incorporation would be good. And then the next thing is, okay, well, how do we generate money? Well, we put in parking meters. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, never. It worked pretty well for old Pasadena. Well, not to some of us. Uh, I, I mean, if, do you like chain stores and, and you know, I don't know. It's rarely the part of Pasadena, Pasadena I go to, but it did raise money. In terms of was money raised, you have to say yes to that. In every other question, you know, that's more ambiguous. The developers have made a lot of money, <laughs> so have the stores. Yes. And, you know, the people that come on a Friday and Saturday night are very happy. Um, I'll give you this, yes, I'm not, I'm not exactly myself going to the Cheesecake Factory every week. <laughs> and I miss the, you know, I miss the DAV, the Disabled American Veterans Store that furnished my first apartments and... <laughs> I don't know. I miss a, I miss a lot of, of old Pasadena. So you, you, you do fear an old Pasadenaization of Altadena to some extent? Maybe. I don't think it's ever going to happen. It would be nice to see it grow a little bit. It would be nice if there was a, a good restaurant. <laughs> That's something you could always hope for. Now, tell me, I, I want to know more about the, what the food is like in these communities, these meadow-style communities, but tell me about... 
who 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 has these weekend houses whether whether in off course or whether in real life who was who was going up there on the weekends who was owning these cabins well not so many people from this area because it was a little bit too far uh there were more people from like the uh west valley which knocked a half an hour but mostly it was it was professionals from Fresno and Visalia and um, Bakersfield, you know, orthodontists and doctors and a few lawyers. I think of, when I read a book like this, I think of how many parts California has, and I don't mean that to sound like a simple issue, because when I think of California, I think of, you usually I think, well, there's, you've got Los Angeles, you've got San Francisco, you've got the sort of northern part where... There's not a lot built up. You've got then the, a giant eastern half, which I rarely get to. I take it in your mind, California is much. You have a much. You have a much more fine-grained picture of how many parts California has. I, what? How do you? How do you divide the state up in your mind? I, what? What are the? What are the important divides? You know, people talk about Northern California and Southern California. East-West seems like more of a divide to me, but it's. I take it you don't find it that simple an issue. I, I maybe have a few more components than you do. But, I forgot San Diego. There's San yeah, Diego. I mean, San Diego is odd, and Orange County, and then Los Angeles, and then there's this sort of wonderful mid-coast from, you know, Ventura and um, Santa Maria, Lompoc, all the way up to... It's very different from San Francisco. I think it's sort of changes around Santa Cruz and you get more Northern California up there. It's a different feeling. And then, you know, how odd and wild the coast gets further north. I mean, I was a travel writer, so I sort of went up and down the state. And then, you know, there's the mountains and and the various mountain communities. And one of the things about the Sierras is that it attracts, as permanent residents, a lot of people who, you know, have to go to where the population is fairly sparse in order to succeed. Mm. That if you took some of these businessmen that have businesses up there and you plop them down where there's any real competition, it's not going to work. Like Jakey, who has his own, the lodge owner, who has his own system of charging um, whatever he feels like at the cash. Subjective cat- pricing, yeah. Exactly, you know. <laughs> So I hadn't thought about it that way, that it's that one might need to go to an area not densely populated to succeed. It always seemed like the other way around to me. You need a certain density. Maybe for me that's true, but for so yeah, for for the Jakeys of the world, this this lodge owner who, who first has his head turned by uh, Cressida, these are it, it's it attracts a different. Would you say that it seems so obviously, in my mind it seems obviously, yes, I don't know what the nuances are to this answer, though. You know, the Sierras and, say, Los Angeles attract a different kind of person, right? Well, it's true that, you know, cities are famous for taking in everybody, that people leave their small little towns and tight lives so they can go to the city and express themselves and be who they are. But then there's, like, a a different kind of people that get thrown out almost centrifugally because they can't walk down a street without getting in a fist fight or they can't open a store without, you know, 
putting their foot in the cash register, you know. So And you've encountered these types in your travels in California. Yes, I have. And I adore them and I love to write about them and and like the contractor in off course, I mean, he's the only he's the only contractor at the meadows, so he he some people are going to use him. Just some sheer convenience. But if he was down here and had to compete and was, you know, overrunning costs by a hundred percent, his just rep- he just wouldn't last very long. There's a fascinating phenomenon here going on in this novel because people talk about Los Angeles like this is the city where people come from all over the country and world to reinvent themselves to give themselves a new image. But even in the Sierras, in in the, in the setting of Off Course, you know, one carpenter. Cressida looks at him and thinks, oh, he's, he sounds so backwoods, he's dressed so mountain manly, mountain manly, I guess is the term, but she, uh, someone, she or someone else asks where he grew up and he says Seal Beach or Orange County, you know, people, people from a place like Orange County are going to the Sierras to remake themselves as mountain men, is, this is happening? Well, as he says later on to Cress, he says, this place has had its way with us, <laughs> yes. it's turning us into hicks. Yes, he didn't, he didn't necessarily choose that. It's being there made him, it made him into a citizen of it. You know, it, it turns you into someone who, who almost feels like they came from there, right? Exactly, exactly. And I sort of love the fact that people go someplace thinking that they're going to change a place or they're going to put their imprint on a place, and mm. it's really two-way. Mm. Does, does Cressida think she's going to leave an imprint on the meadows or any of the surrounding towns, or does she? is that on, on her mind in any way at all? I don't think so. That's a good question. Uh, I don't think she can think of herself in such grand terms. Uh, she really is unmoored and, and off course, and she hasn't found her land legs in adulthood yet. And she doesn't have the tools, really, to find her land legs in adulthood. It's interesting to me because, of course, as we say, the book is set in the early 80s, Cressida is 28, and it, she reminds me so much of the way people her age, I mean, I might as well, I, I'm 29 myself, people people our, our age, uh, Cressida and I, uh, are talked about now. It's like this, this, this time, it has so many trend pieces about how, oh, the flailing late 20-something, they don't know what to do, they're sometimes struggling with dissertations or either jumping from partner to partner as if it was just invented, as if a generation got flung into this uh, suddenly in the 21st century. But in, in 1981, 1982, would Cress have been the representative of a, of a floundering generation or is she, more, is she more isolated in that condition at that time and in this place? Well, actually, it's why I put the book back there, because I felt like it was a mirror to, you know, life since around 2008, since the big crash. Um, there's something about coming out of school and being all prepared, and then there's no room for you in the marketplace. I mean, that changes. I mean, Crest checks out of checks out of it more or less. She pulls herself out of the, you know, wild and woolly marketplace and goes up to the cabin and puts herself, as you said, um, at the beginning in exile because she hasn't been able to find a place where she can, she can make a con- contribution. Her friends, on the other hand, they kind of stay in there and they kind of plug along. And, you know, that was a nasty little recession in 81, 82. But then 
you know, there was a boom time. Mm. It swung quickly into a boom time, a time of bottomless expense accounts and lots of disposable income and, you know, people buying art and cars and trekking vacations, you name it. And now it's a time, that boom, people complain about that more than the recession before it. They'll talk about the consumeristic 80s, the greed is good 80s, oh, the excess. People will bemoan that time, but they don't seem to bring up the recession that preceded it very much, even as a comparison to now, do they? Not too often. I think I think it's because, you know, Reagan was so deified mm. and his, you know, relaxation of regulation and and his lowering of taxes and his, you know, breakdown of social systems to some degree. Um, all those things really contributed to the boom. And and um, he's he's so he's thought to be such an economic genius, but of course it did lead to this terrible time, and it did you know put all of the um, the mentally ill on the streets, and it did to some degree you know set our country really on a on a bad tilt. Milton Friedman, oh my God, you know he was on. He was on, um, you know, public TV, endless hours of him talking about, you know, the glories of sweatshops and free enterprise and you name it. It's just a poisonous time. And it infected us with what we think, um, you know, the economy was. And so I wanted to write about all of that. And and we're paying for it. That's what 2008 did was it, it... it was an answer to, you know, Reaganomics. It makes me think of, I've seen, I've seen some of these shows. It's, it wasn't just economists like Milton Friedman on TV. I remember watching uh, John Kenneth Galbraith's series, which was a bit earlier on public television, but I guess he was Milton Friedman's opposite in many ways. But regardless, this was an era when there were hours of television being given over to economists talking. That's different than today, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I think reality TV and, and episodic TV are just far more entertaining. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Now, I promised myself I would return to this. What do people eat up there in these Meadows-type communities? The food is an important part of this book, it seems, or it's one that comes up a, a whole lot, uh, whether it tells you about the characters making or eating it or whether it tells you about the conditions that people live in up there. What What, what, what are the foods of these places in the Sierras? Oh, definitely meat and potatoes, yes. but also game and potatoes. I remember um, at the lodge, you would be like, you know, rummaging in the deep freeze for a specific kind of popsicle, and you'd come across packets of like rattlesnake meat and squirrel meat. Um, I didn't write about it in the novel, but in the lodge when I was growing up, and later they had a chili cook-off every year, and there was a lot of wild game there would be rattlesnake chili and deer chili and so there was there was game but people got hungry you know that they would go skiing they would be working all day they got really hungry it was really fun um of course it's it's real biscuits and and gravy country you know grease gravy you cook your sausage and then the grease that's left you stir a bunch of flour in it and put some milk and maybe some hot sauce and it it makes this disgusting gluey mass with a few little sausage nubbles in it 
and then you eat that on like two biscuits that you know the kind that you buy the cardboard two biscuits and you crack them on the side of the counter and yes. you bake them they're not actually that bad but i remember a character described in the book uh, Cress looks at this kid and he, she thinks he looks like he was raised on two biscuits and some sort of two biscuits and grease, grease gravy. gravy yes yeah. grease gravy and that the food the food a character eats just tells you a lot about them doesn't it? it it ends up being one of the more effective ways to describe the character is what what do they eat you know you are what you eat i guess i've heard that one but uh what is it is that something consciously important to you what a character eats and what that can tell us readers about the character i think so i mean one of the one of the things that i wrote about was cress's father who is extremely frugal he's a child of the depression and he's pathologically penny pinching um and he's instilled that kind of terror in his children. So whenever Cress goes out to eat with her later boyfriend in the book, Quinn, the married carpenter, um, she always looks for what the cheapest thing on the menu is. She always orders the chicken or the hamburger. And he, who comes from a family where his father was a compulsive gambler and often the coffers were completely cleaned out, um, he spent a year eating a bear that his mother shot and canned and you know he's known poverty like her father but he goes in the other direction and he always he always orders a steak but of course um deprivation and um overindulgence kind of amount to the same thing ultimately uh, the circle meets at the same point yeah the, the, the that depression era sort of superstitious relationship to money comes through in Cress a bit but more so, I mean her father is also a character in the book and you see you see it in action him rehammering out bent nails and, and whatnot ha- handing them out to the construction crew but that memory I was going to bring up uh, the Quinn the Quinn character his memory of his his mother shooting a, a bear through the window and then eating the bear over the next year. That sounds like it's drawn from somebody's real life. Is that a memory you've heard, somebody eating a bear all year? Is that is that a real mountain man story you've heard? It's a real story. It actually was, um, I think it took place in British Columbia. Mm. I commandeered it for the Sierras. <laughs> Still, there's a similar relationship to nature there, where somebody might indeed shoot a bear, know how to prepare the bear. I mean, that's, to me... Yeah, it's hard to shoot. It would be hard if I had to shoot a bear like right now. But it's it's all the rest of it. Knowing actually how, like how do you even eat a bear? It's there's a whole skill set that. I mean, how did you, how did you develop familiarity with the skill set someone living in this environment might have? Because as you say, you had a this is an area you had a relationship with. But as far as I know, you never had to. Uh, eat a bear yourself over a year, right? No, I've never had to eat a bear. Um, I do a lot of research and I talk to a lot of people and I'm just interested in these things. I mean, there's a bear skin in the novel, a bear skin rug, and I actually called a bear skin rug company in Canada and said, what if you kept your bear skin rug wrapped in newspaper and tied in twine in the back of a car for three or four years... What would that do to it? <laughs> How quickly did they come up with the answer? Did they know, oh, this is what it would be like? Um, he was pretty quick. He said, well, let me think. It probably would have a lot of bugs, oh. and it would probably have some mold. And then I actually used a line, you know, that he gave me. He said, it's garbage now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, these are these are skill sets that Cress is not really familiar with coming from where she does. You know, she's coming from... 
one of the more urbanized parts of the state. But it's not like it's not like thrusting somebody who grew up in Manhattan out into the countryside, out into the Ozarks or wherever. Taking somebody from greater Los Angeles to the Sierras is there's something more there's a more fluid relationship with the sort of undeveloped world and the developed world here in Southern California, isn't there? Although the Sierras, you know, that's north, but you know what I mean. I actually agree with you. I mean, this part of the country is young. Our mountains are young, they're more rugged, they're uh, they're not as worn down in the east, and our civilization here is just so much younger. Our buildings are younger. Uh, also, you know, Crest lives in Pasadena, which is, I mean, we're looking out here right now at the mountains, and there are bears in those mountains. <laughs> On Labor Day a few years ago, I was walking my dog up to Echo Mountain, and we rounded a corner right by the top, and there's this big bear running away from us. <laughs> of course, my dog went right after it. Um, you know, so there is an inter interface, I think. Of course, back east, there's wilderness, and there's interface, too. But for some reason, um, it does seem... It does seem that we're kind of a little bit fresher from those outposts. That, that not too long ago, Los Angeles and Pasadena were rugged rural outposts. Now, as I say, you have been a food writer as well. Your work has appeared in many places, including the Los Angeles Times and Weekly. As you say as well, there was a long time you couldn't really get a good meal around here. Uh, I, I have no direct experience of that, but when could you start getting a good meal here? Well, you know, that's a good question. Um, it comes and goes, but I I would say the food, you could always get good ethnic food around Pasadena. Uh, for some reason, it's been hard for Pasadena to support fine dining and especially that first cousin to fine dining, which is kind of really casual, great food. And I think that Europane is like one of the first places, Little Flower, um, uh, this sort of affordable, um, delicious, handcrafted food. It's moving in, you know, there's a lot more available now. We're sitting at a coffee shop now that has really fantastic imported coffee. Yes. So I would say over the last 15 years, mm. Now, I wonder, do you, do you consider Pasadena wholly separate from Los Angeles or as some part of the sort of greater entity that is Los Angeles? What's the relationship to, in, in your mind between Pasadena and whatever you want to call Los Angeles? Well, I have a kind of an old-fashioned take that Pasadena is it's a deeply California city, a small city. It's like Berkeley or Claremont, um, Palo Alto. There's something about it that it's got, you know, these old uh, institutions like Caltech and um, some old progressive churches um, like Neighborhood Church. And, and um, it just has an air of culture about it that's small and, and lovely and contained. Um, Los Angeles is sort of its big wild cousin, um, but I think they have a they have a good relationship. I mean, I love to go downtown and and sort of I still get the same feeling as when you know I I would take 
I don't, I have this memory of taking like the trolley or something, but that can't be right because I think that they were gone before I was born. But there's a sense of going to, you know, downtown LA where it really is like the the big the big city like the big grown-up cousin now now more than it has been in recent decades right i mean the, certainly i'll frame this in, in familiar terms downtown you can you can get good food again down there right oh my god my <laughs> husband my husband works at the um he's an environmental lawyer for the state and he works at the ronald reagan state office building also oh, yes. known as the ronald reagan sob <laughs> um and that's right that's right by Grand Central Market, oh, yes. which is being transformed. I mean, now, you know, I'll say, what do you have for lunch? Oh, you know, a prosciutto and butter sandwich, <laughs> you know, or, you know, a homemade, or a, not a homemade, but a handmade popsicle. Sorry. Or, you know, some fantastic French cheese. Um, and, you know, we go to Macaroni Grill. Is that what it's called? Macaroni Nation Macaroni Grill? Something like that. Yeah, something that's, that's fantastic. I mean, I loved being on jury duty the last time I was on jury duty. <laughs> that's a rare sentence to hear. I loved being on jury duty. Well, I loved it because, A, I was with such a diverse crowd. I was in an interesting courtroom. I was disappointed not to be called. And, B, the judge gave us, like, an hour and a half or two-hour lunch. And I would meet my husband for lunch. We went to a great udon place you know we it, it was just so much fun to walk around downtown and and eat at you know the lazy ox or wherever mm. now how often riding off course would you go from this from this urban world down here up to the sierras did you have to spend much time up there in the writing of this i wrote it almost entirely from memory ah so you didn't have to do the thing where you 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 had the location inside you already in some sense I did, and I did try to go up once, and I didn't make it. I went up in in a May, and they had a freak snowstorm, and I couldn't I couldn't get above about fifty five hundred feet. The snow was coming down too hard. Um, we did go up last summer, and I was sort of like a fact checking mission, <laughs> but I didn't really change anything. I I really knew it. It was really in my in my blood from childhood. I really knew those places. I mean, I had to look up. I had to look up what do you call meadow grass? It's sedge. I don't think. I don't think that made it in the book. But you know, I did. I did. I do research. Now, in the novel, Cress, as we say, she's she gets plunged into this romantic intrigue, and it it makes waves in this small community, and she has these moments in the book where somebody will will suddenly call another character will call her out on what they see as perhaps selfish behavior or oh you you know you're you're being thoughtless maybe you're taking things that aren't yours literally or metaphorically and she does have these very self-aware reactions she thinks well you know maybe i maybe i am the one who's causing trouble what how common do you think that type of self-awareness is or is it how how important to this character is it that she has that because it's Often people fight tooth and nail not to be in the wrong, even in their own minds. It seems like she has flashes of, you know, am I, am I the one, am I the one generating these problems? But what is that tendency in her? What, how does, where does, where does that uh, ability to step back from herself, if only for a moment, come from? Well, I think that she's an intelligent young woman, 
I think she was raised in a household that was emotionally pretty illiterate. Um, I, as I said before, I don't think she really has the tools to grow up yet. But she wants to, and I think she's being driven. She's being driven by the forces within her, and she doesn't know what they are, but she's got this obsessive thing going with a man that she can't have who's married. Um, if she had longer flashes of self-awareness and took on more responsibility for her own self and also for the collateral damage that the affair is causing, she wouldn't do it. But there's a blur in her. There's something in her that has sort of smudged out that part of her sight so that she only glimpses it intermittently. And it is always a little bit of a wake-up call. It's like a little intervention. It's like, you know, somebody saying to her, you are not behaving. This is not right. This is this is not the good way for you to proceed. Um, but she doesn't quite know what to do with the information because she is sort of taken over. I mean, it is an obsession, which is like an addiction. And I think that there are moments when people who are deep in addiction, you know, all of a sudden pull back and see themselves and think, oh, my God, you know, I've been... I've been drunk every day for 32 days, you know. You only see the whole 32 days at once. You don't see any of the one days as you go, but you think, well, that's like, that's over a month. Interesting. (laughs) That's over a month. And then, and then what's the easiest thing to do? You know, get another drink. Right. Exactly. The easiest thing in that moment. That'll, at least I won't have to think about the 30 days of drunkenness if I'm drunk one more day, right? I mean, there's a moment when Jakey, her first affair, talks to her and he says, you know, you got your leg caught in a trap here and you got to chew it off. You know, there's plenty of guys out there that would love to give you a big old house in town and a bunch of babies and and a cabin up here for the weekends. You know, find one of them. And she's like, yeah, what a good idea. God, a guy with money. That's even a better idea. And And she feels great until she sees a truck that looks like Quinn's truck parked as she's driving down the mountain and then she's just folded right back into into this this thing this this circuit of thought and obsession and you mentioned uh, yes Jakey the uh, the lodge owner who's quite a bit older the sort of first affair there at the meadows a very comes off as quite a dopey guy in many ways but it's he does have that moment where he tells her exactly exactly what she needs to hear. It's, it's got to be tempting to give sort of the, the jester that moment, right? To, to make him tell the truth. I guess that's what the jester was actually for in the days of jesters. But is, uh, I mean, that's, is, is, that, uh, is that what you thought while, while giving, giving, granting Jakey the ability to give that insight that, well, maybe sometimes the dope has the answers? Well, in... If you do a study of love stories, which I actually did when I was writing Off Course, and I was also in a Shakespeare tutorial, there is always the clown. And in contemporary literature, I found that the clown often um, moves around. You don't just have the court gesture, but, I mean, Jakey is sort of the clown at times. Um, Cress's father is also a clown intermittently. But... um, 
you know, what does the clown do? The clown tells the truth in a way that's palatable. And it's something by that point in the book she certainly needs to hear because she has these increasing, increasingly frequent oscillations between, well, should I, should I do this? Should I wait for this man? Should I depart entirely? Or getting seized by various impulses along the way. And she thinks occasionally, should I go join my grad school boyfriend in Minneapolis where he's gone to work at the Fed? What's interesting about this, I mean, he's, uh, he's one of the book's men, though he's not obviously a character in the way the others are, but he's always, re- she always refers to him, or the text always refers to him by his whole name, John Bird. He's never just John. And that's, what, uh, what is that about? It strikes me as, it, see, it feels right to me that he's always by his whole name, but why? That's a good question. Um, I stole the name from someone I went to high school with and didn't even <laughs> know that well. But I'm sort of known for calling my husband Jim Potter. And, you know, Tom Lutz always laughs when I call and say, Hi, Tom, it's Michelle Hunovan. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I like a full name. But I think what he, what John Bird represents to her is that thing that we talked about earlier, is that road not taken. You know, John Bird finished his dissertation. He went to Minneapolis. He got a job at the Fed. And, you know, once that dissertation's accepted, I guess he had an internship that turned into a job when he finished his dissertation. And that was where she could have gone. But something, something tore her away. And, uh, and she just has to act out for a few years. Right. And it's funny, he's, John Bird, as as much as I can gather about him in the book, he he's sort of a, the man who doesn't care. He's not going to pursue her, from what I can tell. When she said she wasn't joining him in, in Minneapolis, he didn't uh, he didn't bother him, right? Well, I think it probably profoundly bothered him. I think it probably broke his heart. But I think that he knew her well enough not to argue. He knew it was useless. And um, I mean, he says to her, you know, in his own midwestern attempt to understand he says there's there's still there's still too much gypsy in you yes um and i mean that that could be one way of saying there's still something in you that really needs to be worked out that's a little bit too wild for me now in in this experience cress has in the mountains getting involved with these whether real or constructed uh, mountain men she it seems like friends other characters sometimes are on the verge of accusing her of just slumming uh is that a fear of her of hers to be directly called out like you're just you're just playing at this being with mountain men thing i mean some some characters i guess almost say that but is that is that something cress lives in fear of of just of being called out on that whether or not it's what she's doing i don't think she lives in fear of it because it doesn't kind of register with her I mean I as as the writer I was really interested in how class played out in this book and it's little snobberies and and uh, and it is something that uh, would be something <laughs> that would discourage her if she ever actually got what she wanted. And there's a moment, for example, when she's talking with a girlfriend about how easy it is to be in love with an unavailable man. You know that it's going to end. You're not thinking about picking up dirty socks for the next 30 years or the fact that he never, you know, 
puts the bath mat back, you know, hangs it up after he's gotten it all wet. And that's what, you know, sort of her girlfriend says, you don't ever have to worry about that. And, and Cress is like, yeah, that's right. But what she really thinks is, no, what she worries about is Quinn's use of prepositions. Yeah, yes, he does have certain solecisms that you let drop in the book. You know, should of is a big one. I should have, or what have you wrote today, yes, exactly. or things like that. And the fact that she can distinguish, the crest can distinguish should have and should have just by listening tells you something right there, that she's listening for that, right? I think she can't help but listen. Her mother, of course, was a was a was um, an actress, and so she probably has very good elevated diction. Mm, I see. It's the, the, issue of, the issue of the small snobberies she sees around her. I mean, this is, this is, and it gets into back into sort of California regionalism. I mean, doesn't it? It's, it's the ways the parts of California regard each other. They're sort of the ways America, parts of America regard each other in microcosm, aren't they? Definitely. And that area up there, when I went up that time to do research, I had an Obama sticker on my car. And I went to the grocery store and I came out and there were some people looking at it. They didn't know it was my car. And they were like, boy, that is so brave to have that on your car up here. Were they Obama supporters who wouldn't dare do that? Or were they just people who were like, you don't see that around here? I didn't ask. <laughs> But still, that's, a, that's surprising to see an actual crowd around there looking at the sticker saying, oh, oh boy, yeah. good luck. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't really, it was just a few people, just like three people, but it was... Three's a crowd. Uh, three's a crowd, exactly. Um, but I sort of let them go into the market before I claimed my car. Mm. It's a good illustration of the idea that a lot, a lot of political allegiance comes down to how many people are you around, you know, cities almost always go blue, areas like the meadows almost always go red. And it does seem, on, on one hand, a bit simple to say that this is all determined by what population density you live in. But on the other hand, I guess you can kind of see, you can see that, right? How, how, the, how the density of the place you're in, how many people you are around, how that can affect where your allegiance is politically, right? Well, and also services. Right. You know, people that live in the in the mountains, um, what are they're on? They don't have a sewer system. You know, they're on well water. Uh, they do require, you know, the state to plow the road, but you know, they don't have a policeman. They don't have a fire department. It's all volunteer. They don't need services, so they don't need government. So they don't like government and. Right. And it, it can almost be as simple as that. In the city, you need a lot more services, and so you're a lot more appreciative of right. what government comes to, has to offer. Right. You, at least you, you interact with it. Like here in, in Los Angeles or Pasadena, the signs are all around you. But I could understand if I was in the mountains where if I called 911, you know, I'm not sure anybody's showing up for the next two hours, right? Right, and whereas you want to graze your cattle on the pasture land like people have been doing for a hundred years, you don't want someone to come in and regulate you about that. How far did the travel riding take you? How far afield did, did you go? I mean, was it, was it, it was obviously across California, but beyond there as well? Well, I, I did a lot of travel writing back when California Magazine existed. Mm. Not a lot, but I, I went around the state. And then later on, I did a, I did um, 
like three articles for gourmet where they were cooks vacations like i went to ireland and rented a house and had had a bunch of friends there and we cooked we spent a week cooking and then i went with a friend to jordan and we tried to rent a place and um that sort of fell through but we concentrated on the food we made people cook for us which the jordanians being an incredibly generous culture um you know took very seriously and put on all sorts of feasts for us and i learned a lot about jordanian cooking and then um i did another one in corsica where we rented a a jeet they call them and we cooked and ate corsican food what, so what type of structure is that oh a jeet a jeet is just um what they call in england a self-catering cottage and what we would call um you know like a a vacation rental with a kitchen. I see. Sure. Much much more practically speaking, a vacation, but if if less romantically speaking, a vacation rental with a kitchen. It does seem I can see why this it's like this in your career, but travel writing and food writing are never that far apart, are they? They you, they can't be separated much, can they? And if you try, that would be a problem. No, you need to eat three yes. t- three times a day and also if you like food, which I do, there's just always these alluring things to try or interesting things or challenging things that you know you want to try when you're in in a different place don't you find that in korea when you go to korea that you want to eat street food and well everywhere really it's it's uh there is there is a sense that when i am in a new city and that's it's completely open to me i you know i, I don't know where anything is but that's a plus and a minus. It's more a plus than a minus, you know. Eating is the first thing on the agenda, not just because you have to, but because that, more than anything else, gets you into a place. I mean, it's partially because there's different foods everywhere, but partially because that's the one thing everybody's doing in the place, right? You're, you're instantly doing something everybody there does if you're eating, because no one gets out of that. Yeah, and you have these transactions or interchanges with people, which are sometimes difficult to have when you're a tourist. Where do you, you know, actually have to talk to people? And, um, you know, you, you just sort of, you get a glimpse of what daily habits are, and um, you get a, a sense of money and what things cost. There's really so much that's um, conveyed in the act of procuring food in a foreign in a foreign country or foreign city. And all these, of course, all these impressions you could collect went in directly into the travel and the food writing. But did you know that... Were you consciously storing them up for novelistic purposes as well during all this time? I'm, I'm not that organized. But, um, you know, novels eat up vast amounts of stored trivia. <laughs> I can imagine. And it's sort of gotten worse as I've gotten older and my memory has gotten bad that it's kind of harder. To, and, and also I've used up a, a great many stores of, of trivia, but somehow it keeps replenishing. The observations and the facts that stick with you, they themselves sort of look for a place in the novels then. They kind of call out to you and say, well, put me in. I don't care what it takes. Get me in that novel. And that, that, changes, that changes novels as you write them, just facts experiences that need a, a home in the text, right? Um, sometimes. Sometimes there's something like that bear story. I wrote yes. to that bear story, or I'll write to an image. I'll have a sense of something. Um, but also, sometimes you're just going along, and 
you know, these these thoughts bubble up like a little bubble in a bog, you know, mm. and these things you hadn't thought about for years suddenly occur to you. Mm. It's a process then where this stuff stored up mentally finds its release in the novel, but the writing of the novel brings up other stuff like, oh, that wasn't actually in my consciousness until now. Hmm. Exactly. I mean, it's really... I mean, this is why I'm a novelist, because it's so interesting. I mean, I think when I was young, I thought it would be a platform for status and fame and being a part of the literary conversation. But as I get older, I think... God, I gotta write more novels because I want to see what's in there. Right, you're you're as surprised as anybody by, and it's a it's an old story, of course. You know, you want to know what your characters will do, but there's there's more besides that you discover when you're writing. It's not just it's not just the characters. You want to see. I mean, in the case of your novels, the setting is so important. You know, you you want to see how you want to see what these real settings become when they turn fiction, right? And how do they change in that process? Well, they change for convenience sake. Um, they become sort of more numinous in a way. They become certainly more enclosed, more workable, um, and more vivid. I mean, it's funny that when you write a novel that has a lot of familiar things in it, that after a while I can't really remember what's true and, and what's not. The and line I, goes away. It goes away. It, it's all, it's just exists as a vision in my head. So. Now, the, the Cressida Hartleys of the early 80s and the Cressida Hartleys of, of today, are they, are they the same type of people? Are you more optimistic about... Do are you more optimistic about one generation of them than the other, or do they seem like a continuation? Uh, today's cresses are are sort of fundamentally the same, or different from the ones in the eighties. Well, I think they're fundamentally the same. I think that I think that the late twenties is a really interesting time for a lot of women because. And I can't really speak to men, but I'm sure it might be true for men as well. It's a pretty interesting time from what I can tell so far. I'm almost out of my 20s, but yeah, I mean, I like it. Yeah, I mean, it's there's so much possibility. And, you know, you finish school, you pretty much, you're pretty much done with family. You've moved out of your family. You're being independent. You're establishing yourself in life. You're taking the first steps towards you know, really cementing your career or making decisions. You know, it's a time of enormous possibility and enormous terror. <laughs> and Those tend to go hand in hand, don't they? They do. And also, um, where the gaps in your education and your emotional education and your upbringing, um, if, if you kind of lose your velocity, what sort of comes up and, and takes you over. And I think that that's what happened to, to, to Cress in a, in a big way, that she, she lost her way. She literally lost her way. I think that what she did in those years was important. I think that she worked through some stuff. I think she had some big things to work through that had to do with who she was, her temperament, and also this family, this, um, 
this family that really meant well but did not know how to raise children to full adulthood. I mean, Chris's, Chris's sister also struggles in a completely different way in the book. She is much more sort of therapeutic in her bent, and she goes to OA, and she has participates in the sort of modish uh, rebirthing therapy. Yes, I, did, I didn't even ask about that, but that's, boy, that seems pulled right from the era, doesn't it? The, the rebirthing therapy and these long, anxious letters about it and all that. Yeah, yeah she and she was sort of like, I realize that, they're, that I'm turning into my parents and I don't want to and I have these tendencies and and I don't want them running my life and what can I do about it? seems like one surefire way to become your parents is to de- dedicate yourself to being their opposite, right? It seems like um, it seems like that's that's a pretty sure roadmap. But also like with Cress's mother who took Cress and her daughters up to the cabin every single weekend to keep them away from alcohol and drugs and boys. Um, she should have just handed Cress a blueprint for, you know, doing exactly the thing that she dreaded the most, which was, you know, for Cresta also, as the mother had, it comes out, fallen in love with a married man. Now, this is too big a question to ask at the very end, but I'll do it anyway, because you interact with students, you, you, you have experience of multiple generations here. Are, do you think young women today are in a better off position than... than Cress's generation was at that time, you know, especially the ones who are sort of looking for a way forward. I, I feel like it's sort of our natural narrative to say that the, the lot of young women in America is better now than it was 30 years ago. But do you think that's necessarily true? I think so. I, I think to some degree we're just so much more conscious at a, as a culture and we talk to each other so much more and there are so many more solutions that present themselves. Is there recidivism? Is there sexism? Is there repression? Yes, yes, yes. You know, is it harder for women than for men? Um, well, you could argue both sides. I think both sides are affected by some of the, you know, systems that are in place. Um, I think it's hard on men because they have to be a certain way, and it's hard on women because they feel that they have to be a certain way, and they oppress each other, and, <laughs> and it's circular. And um, But I do think... I do think that it's easier for women in the same sense that it's easier for, um, you know, ethnic minorities to be a fuller part of the culture and for gays and lesbians to be a fuller part of the culture. We've just enlarged ourselves and our consciousness to a, a good degree. I've been speaking here in Pasadena, California, with novelist Michelle Hunovan. She's the author of four novels, Round Rock, Jamesland, Blame, and The New Off Course. Michelle, thanks so much. Oh, Colin, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org and with me at colinmarshall.org. Thanks.